0: Area 941 podcasts are produced and distributed by community-powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Bay Area Theater Podcast. I'm Richard Wolinsky, with interviews conducted over the years and during the pandemic with playwrights, directors, actors, and producers. This podcast was first posted June 8, 2018. After the run of Curran, Soft Power opened at New York City's Public Theater on September 14, 2019, and closed after a limited run on November 17, 2019. It was a finalist for the 2020 Pulitzer Prize for Drama, was nominated, though didn't win any Drama Desk Awards, and did win four Outer Critics Circle Awards, for Off-Broadway Productions. My guests are Janine Tesori and David Henry Huang. They are the creators of a show called Soft Power at the Curran Theater in San Francisco. Janine Tesori is the composer of such shows as Fun Home and Caroline or Change, and worked on several other shows that hit Broadway, including Thoroughly Modern Millie, and Shrek the Musical. David Henry Huang, among other shows, created M. Butterfly, which was a huge hit, and worked on a rework of Flower Drum Song, and is one of the leading Asian playwrights in America. And I guess it would be nice where I didn't have to say Asian, and there were so many
1: Actually, we have a joke in Soft Power where there's a character that is named DHH, it's obviously an autobiographical character, and somebody says, oh, you're the most famous American Chinese playwright," and then says, but there are not really so many of you are there. You know, at this point, I feel like I am an Asian American, and I'm a playwright. So it's a, it's a reasonable description.
0: One of the things you did, which I'd like to get to at some point, is you've worked on several operas with Philip Glass, which sounds really interesting. But let's first talk about soft power. I understand this was originally a commission from Center Theater Group in L.A. A guy named Michael Ritchie approached you. Where did you come up with the idea which concerns a musical within a play about Hillary Clinton and the Chinese? How did that original idea hit you? And this was long before Janine came on and long before that guy got elected and even before you were stabbed.
1: Right. So Michael Ritchie, who runs the Center Theater Group in L.A., commissioned me to do a play for The Taper, which is one of their theaters. is about 800 seats. I was thinking about what I wanted to write, I had been in discussions probably for the last 10 years or so with various Chinese producers from China, because China wishes to gain quote unquote, soft power, that is cultural, artistic influence. So they're always trying to figure out how to crack the system, essentially, how to create an international box office success, whether in film or on Broadway. So I've had a lot of meetings with them and with different producers, and so therefore became kind of fascinated by this issue. Then I saw the most recent revival of The King and I on Broadway, and that's a show that I've always loved. I've probably seen three or four iterations of it. It was a beautiful production. But I also became, you know, more aware of things that are kind of suspect in The King and I. For instance, the premise, the idea that there's an English woman who goes to Siam and teaches the king how to rule his own country. And yet it's so beautifully done, it's such a perfect musical, that it's still incredibly powerful and by the end I'm still in tears. So it's that complicated feeling when you know that the content is questionable and yet the artistry is so great. And I wanted to recreate that complexity for a mainstream American audience. So I started to think about a play where you would have a Chinese executive who would have kind of a glancing meeting with Hillary Clinton and then 50 years later that would be mythologized into an East-West musical from the Chinese point of view when China is the dominant part of the world and also is able to utilize the musical form. What would that feel like?
0: And at a certain point Janine Tessori comes in. You approached her. Had you known each other?
2: Everybody knows David's work. I knew that he was the head of a wonderful program at Columbia, and we were talking about my coming to teach there. And then at the end of that meeting, he mentioned this idea. And I've learned to trust my first impulse of certain things, and this was one of them. It was a really wonderful, unusual idea.
0: Were you working at that point on Fun Home, or was Fun Home finished?
2: Fun Home was finished. I believe that was 2015, right? Or 14? I don't Um, know. Let's see.
1: Yes, we discussed it for the first time in
0: late 15 or early 16. Were you working on anything else at the time?
2: I'm always doing four or five things. It's helpful for me. I find it's very helpful to put something aside and work on something else, because it gives me relief from the thing that, That is haunting me. But also to make a living, I I feel like a lot of us have to do many things. There are very few writers I know. There are a few who have done this very successfully, who have written a big mega show. And then they don't need to, but they continue. I'm not one of those.
0: So he approaches you, and you start thinking about this. At that point in the original discussion, was there this idea of kind of making it Rogers and Hammerstein-y? Was that from the beginning?
2: First of all, when David approached me, there was nothing on paper, which I loved because it's original. The last time I wrote something original was Caroline or Change. They're much harder, but when you're working with a master playwright, you have a shot at it because an adaptation of something is easier and the thing that is much harder is when there's not a template to follow. There's not a narrative template. And certainly for this, this is a narrative of the spirit and of the search. I think it's an American search. I think it's a spiritual search. It's a search of a political and personal identity. And I don't know anybody in this country who doesn't have that search.
0: At this point, you've got the theory behind it and a kind of broad outline at what point or how does that begin to meld itself into a play with music it starts
1: with an outline oftentimes and that was uh, our case too particularly when you're working on an original story you kind of have to do a mind meld between several different artists the composer the lyricist the book writer the director sometimes even the producer And so to get something down on paper that's just concrete, that everybody can kind of kick around and begin to to pick apart, is the first step. I mean, I think what was different about this process was that the original notion was that, as I said, you have a Chinese executive who has, you know, a very kind of casual meeting with Hillary Clinton. And the original idea was that when that became mythologized as a musical, it would be pretty much a flip on The King and I so that this Chinese executive would become Hillary Clinton's advisor, President Clinton's advisor, and help her to solve the problem of gun violence in America. Then I start doing a few drafts of it. Janine and I talk about ideas for songs, but there hasn't been any music written yet. When we do the reading of a draft, on the day of the 2016 election. So then, the next morning, I thought, well, this is going to be pretty horrible for the country, but it could be really good for art musical.
0: Janine sorry. okay, you're the composer, and you're listening to him. What's going on in your head? Are melodies forming, ideas about how you want to play with it, or are you just kind of talking about the play itself and ignoring that element?
2: Part of the way that I work is I'm not someone who just sets work. I'm really dramaturgically oriented and I don't write, but I feel like I have an understanding. I'm really interested in the piece as it starts to reveal itself. And I believe in that kind of teamwork. That's what really interests me, the crossword puzzle-like. And there's nothing more crossword puzzle-like than... A musical. I think there's a reason why Stephen Sondheim is so great and collects all those puzzles. It's because they're the ultimate puzzles. They really are. It's a combination of a crossword puzzle and Kerplunk or Jenga, where you pull one thing out and the whole thing goes. I loved Kerplunk as a kid, and I think I've just keep playing it with doing musicals. I like doing this a lot, even when writing operas. I can't write something until I understand the text and I understand the endeavor as a whole. So there were uh, many readings and workshops where I was just speaking until I could understand what I was doing. Because once you start writing one song that we did, it sets the tone. You're in. You start painting with a a, a palette. And it's very hard to switch. So you take that plunge. And until I understand what we're doing, what it is asking for, I literally can't write.
0: Uh, Well, a novelist will talk often about the voice and the voice that permeates, and it could very well be different from novel to novel. Is that kind of what you're driving at here?
2: Exactly right. I think there is the world, the sonic world of the play. Every musical to me is, is a play. It's the dramatic event and what the characters sound like what the tessitura is of each voice, why they're like that. There's a series of decisions that are guiding principles for the way that it's going to operate. And once you make those decisions, it is very hard to turn back. I also procrastinate, but I think part of the procrastination is that if you write it later and well, with a certainty, you don't have to go in and rewrite from the ground up.
0: If you're looking at it from a Rodgers and Hammerstein melodic point of view, that's A little bit different than, say, some of the other projects you worked on. Oh,
2: yeah. Writing theater is a combination of being on a field hockey team and a debate team. You're all going towards one goal, but as you're going there, the person who has a strong impulse, you feel like, okay, it's rotating leadership. Now you go. And we were really discussing about really playing characters of two Chinese authors, a composer and a librettist, lyricist you know what, I can't get into the intellectual game of trying to predict what music will sound like then. I'm just going to write the most beautiful music I can with respect to the American songbook that these clearly these Chinese writers loved, and then let it go, and then get them to hire an orchestra, which they did, which is the only way that you can deliver a romantic musical score.
0: Were you kind of ignoring the various harmonies that happen, say, in Chinese music?
2: Well, I have a great love for the pentatonic scale that is the the basis of of that culture. And I spent a considerable amount of time in China when I was a student on a cultural exchange program. And I, in my 20s, produced hundreds and hundreds of hours of world music and got to know some of the greatest erhu and pipa players and professors of music over in Shanghai and Beijing. And so it's sort of in there in the bank. So it didn't take me long to be able to be inspired by that and also follow the tropes of, oh, the song that the parent sings to the child when the parent is going or landed in a foreign land, or oh, here's the teaching song. Like, you know, about language, about this, and that was really fun, because it was done not as a parody, but as, as someone who genuinely loves the form to reveal the, the prismatic at the other side of looking at a musical.
0: Uh, are you also dealing with things like the 11th hour number and the want song? I
2: don't think of them in that way. It's And it's funny. I think that just like Balanchine said, after you do 10,000 tondu, you just don't think about it. You just move your foot. It becomes not an intellectual exercise. As you now, ex post facto, you look and I think, oh, that's the 11 o'clock number. It's the moment that the character, just like in Greek plays, goes from darkness into light. And that's an 11 o'clock number, which was named that way because shows started at 8.30 back in the day. And we definitely have that. And I didn't even think of it until I I thought, oh, that's our 11 o'clock number. What about
1: the want song at the beginning? I don't know that we have an I want song per se. One thing that we definitely have is a kind of I believe song and that it's an I believe song that is going to be that, that belief ends up getting really challenged over the course of the show. It's a variation, I think, on an I want song.
0: Let's get back to the origins now. So you're in discussion, Trump has won, And you're realizing that something is going to change because now Hillary Clinton will not be president. This is not the King and I. This is before or after your stab? I got stabbed before the election, relatively close to the
1: election, just to sum it up in a sentence, I was on my block um, about 9 p.m. I was walking home. Someone snuck up from behind and severed my vertebral artery and ran away. Like, they didn't try to steal anything. So it all worked out fine. I walked to the hospital, and I'm good. But
2: that, well, I did downplayed. I mean, it, it, it was very, very, very serious. Yeah,
1: I mean, I could have... Yes, it was a near-death experience. Yes, and it I could, was a
2: near-death experience. Yeah. <laughs> yes. He does it, he's like, and see, I'm fine. It was... <laughs> Traumatic,
1: so event, (laughs) uh, but I didn't know that that was necessarily going to work its way into this show. So the election happens. The part of me that feels, oh, this could be good for this show, is because we're trying to write a musical, as Janine says, we're pretending like we're Chinese, you know, Chinese nationals, Chinese uh, theater artists, fifty years from now, who are writing about twenty sixteen, and from the Chinese point of view. Of course, democracy is a chaotic concept that China's government tends to function, if anything, as as sort of they, they want to be like a technocracy. They want to just promote the people who supposedly are the best. So if anything, the 2016 election and its its aftermath that we're living through now could be argued to reinforce the Chinese point of view that democracy really isn't a good system. So the musical then, our show, has higher stakes because we're really able to debate the nature of democracy itself. In some sense, it reinforces this idea that if you have democracy and if you have voting, then sometimes you get the stupidest people in office. So again, it it supports the Chinese position.
0: How did the stabbing, which becomes a major part of the story, what kind of revelation was that in terms of what was there before?
1: Honestly, the stabbing was not part of the original outline. And when I first started writing the play part of it the beginning, and then I knew I was going to make the leap to Uh, you know, an early draft of the musical, uh, all of a sudden I just found myself writing about the stabbing. And I thought, okay, I guess I need to write about the stabbing. It's probably not going to make its way into the the musical, but, you know, maybe I can use it for something else. And then, interestingly, the stabbing in Soft Power has become really pretty central, a mechanism and a device and a kind of psychological revelation to make the rest of the show happen.
0: When I was looking on online for some of the early reviews from the previews down in L.A., what I noticed, what people were saying, this is a really funny show, really, really funny show. And from the discussion here, it sounds really, really serious. So you're both writing a comedy on top of all of this. Was that always part of the intention to make it a comic show?
1: I think we were always going to work with the musical comedy form. If anything, the the notion is that, you know, the Chinese fifty years down the road have appropriated the American musical comedy. And I tend to just about everything I do is serious but has sort of comic elements anyway. So that felt very natural to me.
0: Since both of you have worked with gender issues in Fun Home and in M. Butterfly, is there any of that in here? I don't actually think this
1: is a show that tackles that issue as much. It, it's,
2: I think we tackle it in Hillary about what it takes for, what will it take for a, a woman to get elected. Um, and I think that that idea, is it possible really for us to ever say the words Madam President, it really, you know, that, that woman is going to have to be perfect in all ways, 10 times as much to get a 10th of the pie. I'm not a fan of watching my work. I I start to turn on it, but I am amazed at how much I have learned from watching this go by because it's right out of today. You walk from the world into the theater and you see the world. And in a musical, a romantic musical comedy, that is almost never true. The only time it's happened to me was when in Fun Home, when the Supreme Court voted on gay marriage and we had a show that night but this is literally happening right now.
0: Are you feeling similar things? And does what's happening outside change the revisions?
1: Yeah, first of all, I just want to reinforce what Janine said about the role of gender in the show, and she's absolutely right about that. I was taking the question to mean sort of gender fluidity, which I think the show doesn't address. But yeah, it's a show that is a musical theoretically written in the future, but about today. And so... I don't know what's going to happen, of course, but it's already taken place once in the development process that a current news event altered the course of this show. And I think it is hard to write something about the time that you're living in and a musical that much more so. And I feel like the only reason we're able to make it happen effectively in this play is, is because we're really trying to take that lens and look at today as if it were the past, as if we're looking at, at 2016, 2018 from the perspective of the future.
2: In that same vein, you know, I bristle at the words, make America great again. Uh, America is a great country. The American experiment is complicated. It is messy. It's based on debate, which is the very thing that musicals are made of. So I always wonder, from what time are we discussing to make something great again? And it's from the lens of the past that this leader is asking us to look at our country now, which is ineffective and dangerous because this this country has had a deep racist past. Um, based on freedom of speech, racism, and genocide. So what we absolutely have to do as a country is look forward, not back to retrieve a time that who wants that time to be retrieved? Certainly not this team.
0: Well, I've noticed, for instance, with a number of the Rodgers and Hammerstein shows, The King and I, the version you saw, focused more on feminism. The earlier version, the, the earlier revival focused on colonialism. And I know that as they bring these shows up, the focus does change to accommodate the times. You could see it right now more than anything, say, in Cabaret, right? My Fair Lady,
2: for sure.
0: And My Fair Lady, sure. You're not thinking in those terms at all. I mean, it's not frozen in that sense. And you could see it in Angels in America, at Berkeley Rep, too.
2: You know, it's very interesting. There are shows themselves that are part of the repertoire and this is unbelievably true in opera. When you think about the political debate and the way that it's expressed in opera, opera was pulled from the epic times and the conversation happening in those countries. And so when you bring it forward, and Shakespeare is the greatest example, you don't need to change one word because twas ever thus. It's always happening. And then there are other things that a 2018 audience is going to look at that and think, what's my entry point into this piece? so that I don't hold it at a distance but I understand how it applies to me right now and so I think those revisions that are in the spirit, like to me what Bart did was in the spirit of Shaw I think that he again focused on a part of the story that was the intention of Shaw that I I believe and I think in terms of the, the King and I with great works you're able to a director has some leeway to say I want you to get this out of it
0: Getting back to Soft Power, what we have is a show created 50 years from now, performed 100 years from now, or at least that seems to be the idea. So in fact, the performance of the show would be different than it would have been 50 years from now. Is that going on in your mind at all? There are a lot of levels
1: and mirrors and lenses that we're dealing with. That doesn't actually, that's not actually one that we've, we've active, that we've actively engaged. I
2: think it's the only one we haven't engaged.
1: Right. Well, we also haven't really engaged the sort of sci-fi vision of, okay, in the
0: future, people are going to wear computers in their heads.
2: Right,
0: right, right. I know that what Sondheim, for instance, will do is he'll take the play and then he'll go, or maybe this was Hammerstein, pull out stuff and that's where the song goes.
1: In our case, and one of the reasons I was so intent on and and hopeful that I could get Janine to work on this is because it is a difficult concept to, to make happen. And I needed someone who I felt knew musical theater inside and out, knew how the levers work, was sort of a scholar of musical theater. And I wanted to learn from Janine. And I feel like I, I have been able to do that. So... We, at a certain point, went down and just started talking about the musical programming. I remember we had a couple meetings where we just sort of talked about, okay, what would the songs be? And I had written some lyrics, like ideas for songs, which Janine showed me were, you know, too kind of general and thematic and not specific enough. I remember I wrote a lyric... I don't know if you remember this one, uh, called Through Our Eyes, right? So it's, it's a, a song that the, the Chinese <laughs> executive is trying to say, wouldn't it be wonderful if, you know, we could make these movies that would help the world to see things through our eyes? That idea is a pretty good idea, but the lyric is, you know, just too kind of soggy. And that's become a song now called Fuxing Park, which is very specifically about how one of the characters uh, helps the other to see China differently through understanding this very beautiful park in Shanghai.
2: But that lyric lives on in the subtext, and that's, I think, a really a slippery slope of lyrics. Sometimes lyrics are facile. Because they're actually, you're writing what the actor is playing as opposed to what the actor is saying. And that and that gives you the beautiful contrast, that crosshatch, that of course it's a song that is really about look at it through our eyes because that's what the character wants. So when you say, I want song, he wants something for someone else, which is a sort of colonialism and imperialism that someone comes into another country and says, you know what I want for you? I don't know what I want for myself, so I'm going to put it on you because that's the way soft power works.
0: And that gets back to the title. Was the title always there then?
1: We were looking back in some of our old emails and stuff to (laughs) prepare for the opening in L.A., and I realized that, oh, I'd, I'd written kind of two pages in 2016 about the concept, and I did call it soft power back then. So this notion of soft power being a country's intellectual, artistic, and, and cultural influence on the world, it, for me, continued to remain the umbrella under which a lot of these ideas
0: that we're uh, engaging with in the play seems to fall. Clearly, both of you work your art in political context. This is obvious from all of the work both of you have done. Have you found in your own heads a way to ensure that you're not being preachy you know you don't want people applauding what you're saying you want them applauding the work you do
2: when you put something up for the first time we've talked about it and i was at a meeting with a film director and, and he was saying how the proscenium and the frame of film are very similar which was so is one of the reasons why i remain curious and open to new ideas and i thought never thought of that exactly true and and the way that if i'm going to the audience and And sort of campaigning, why don't you think as I think, Uh, that to me is a preaching as opposed to two people trying to debate, thinking that they know the answer. Well, I know the answer, which is exactly what's happening in this country right now the belief systems are knocking against each other and the thing that i really love that david's done and has done from day 1 is for every argument there's a counter argument and the audience goes back and forth and and you know that's the beauty of it that's the messiness of it who is right is it better to have an election and and perhaps get someone as we have right now? Or is it better to simply assign leaders and the people? It's not by by the people, it's only for the people. And it's really interesting and it's gotten me thinking about, I've never thought any other way. But of course, there are other ways that other countries do it. They don't have to do it like we do it.
0: Well, of course, Shaw. Sure is notorious for making his villains actually say more reasonable things sometimes than his heroes. And it comes up again in Angels in America, in the Democracy in America speech by Lewis. Right. So it's it's there implicit in all of these works. The thing about being preachy,
1: or the, the fear of being preachy, stems from a sense that the author knows a particular point of view that he or she wants to convey to the audience and wants to make them believe. For me, if I have that feeling, I might write an essay or I might write an op-ed piece. I wouldn't write a play because a play is about engaging a question that I don't understand. So this question that Janine just um, uh, outlined about democracy, that's, I think, a fascinating question. For me, in this play, there's also the question about China wants to achieve soft power. It wants to create these international hits, but it also has censorship. So are those two things inherently incompatible? I don't know the answer to that. And so I'm writing the play in order to engage that question.
0: Do you come up with answers when you're finished with... I mean, you've written so many plays that ask questions. When you're done, what is the feeling that you get?
1: I feel like I understand the question much better by engaging with it. And I sometimes come to an understanding of how I really feel about it on a kind of subconscious level. So yes, I do end up answering the questions that I pose uh, by writing a play. However, that often leads to more questions.
0: And Janine Tesori, how does that fit into creating composing music? Do those elements, this question, this back and forth, does that influence how you're composing.
2: Completely. I think a lot of composing, or maybe most of composing, is about tension and release. And the idea of the the dissonance, not only in terms of the musical palette, but the dissonance. You know, we have a mostly, a 95% Asian-American cast, and they're Korean and Japanese-American and Filipino, and it's just just this beautiful uh, community on stage. And they sing a gospel piece at the finale because that to me is a, an American tradition that I shouldn't be writing in a sense, but for I've written it my whole life, a kind of church music. It's what I grew up with. And it's startling in the greatest way to hear these voices and these solos in an American art form because they're Americans. And um, David made a speech to the cast yesterday about seeing this community on stage setting an agenda in an American musical, which is a great American art form, you know, uh, and and so the the planting of the flag, I think, is really thrilling and, and complicated.
0: Changing the subject for David Henry Huang, had you always been involved in writing plays? Because when you were at Yale Drama School, you began getting plays produced, which means you'd been working in the field even before.
1: Yeah. I mean, I actually did not grow up in a theater family. I had a kind of freakishly good amount of fortune in that I went into my undergraduate at Stanford not knowing what I was going to do. And four years later, had written my first play to be performed in my dorm, um, FOB, which then 14 months later opened off Broadway at the Public Theater in New York. So I had had my first production of the public before I went to Yale drama school. And then I had two other productions scheduled my first year at Yale. So it just, it's the reason I dropped out. It's not, Yale was a wonderful program, but it was just like, I just was never in New Haven.
0: And playwriting technique, you just gathered through osmosis at some point, or what?
1: Well, I mean, I wrote a play, you know, my sophomore year in college. There were no playwriting classes at Stanford, and I found a a professor, John LaRue, who taught a class in drama and ran the creative writing department. And I wrote some plays in my spare time. I asked John to take a look at them. Uh, He told me they were really bad, which they were, and uh, that my problem was that I wanted to write plays, but I didn't actually know anything about the theater. But John was a good guy and helped me to design a playwriting major within the creative writing department, where I basically just saw as many plays and read as many plays as I could for the next three years. And then I also had the opportunity for four weeks to study with Sam Shepard, Irene Fornez, Um, Marie Mendick Walter Hadler at the first iteration of uh, something called the Padua Hills Playwrights Festival in Southern California. And I feel like that four weeks was where I really learned to bring characters to life.
0: And after all of that, somewhere along the line, you've heard about the events that became M. Butterfly and said, holy cow.
1: Yeah. um, I heard at a cocktail party about the French diplomat who had a a, 20-year affair with a Chinese actress who turned out to be a, a spy, and B, what we would now call physically male, and the diplomat claimed that he never knew the gender of his lover. So yeah, I thought that that
0: could, that could was interesting. Have you ever thought of turning that into a musical?
1: There is something going on that I'm thinking, uh, can I talk about it yet? No. Something like that might happen.
0: You just gave that one away. So then you became involved in writing librettos as well. Were you approached to do that? Did you approach someone? Was it an opera, a musical?
1: So I began my little sort of opera libretto sideline when Philip Glass approached me. I was in my late 20s and asked me to work with him on a piece. Initially, we were going to do an adaptation of War of the Worlds, and then we uh, found out that the rights to that were held by the Electric Light Orchestra. And so we ended up writing our own alien abduction piece called A Thousand Airplanes on the Roof. And subsequently, Philip and I have now done four shows together, two musical theater pieces and two proper operas. And then because there aren't that many people who have had experience writing opera libretti, I just started getting impressed by other composers.
0: And at this point, I've, I think I've written like 10 or 11 operas. Is each opera created differently because the composers are different? Or do, does your method now kind of set the process?
1: When I write a play, I'm the sort of primary artist and everybody supports me. If I write a movie, the director's the primary artist. When I do an opera libretto, I feel like the composer is the primary artist. So the composer, to my mind, determines what the process is, what the tone is, what the style is. And I become a craftsperson who is helping uh, him or her to realize that vision. So generally, I try to spend a lot of time with the composer and get into their head and understand what's going to push their buttons and help them to do their best work.
0: So it sounds like, for you at least, the primary difference between working on an opera and working on a musical like Soft Power, it's really major. It's like, who is the lead?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think that's what makes musicals so hard, that in musicals you don't usually have one person who's the lead, and you do have to do that mind meld thing. It offers are different in so many ways. You don't have previews. You can't really rewrite up until the last minute. Um, you don't change things. It's a very different
0: set of working principles. Well, that brings us to Janine Tesori and her operas with Tony Kushner. How does she give you the lead on that?
2: I'm working on my fourth opera, I guess. So I've written um, one with Tony and one with J.D. McClatchy. So I guess this is my third. Yeah, and this and this one is with a gentleman named Taswell Thompson for the w, uh, Glimmerglass and WNO. It's interesting to hear David speak from the other point of view. When I get a libretto, even then I feel like... I write a different hybrid kind of opera. It's led by more event. But the ability to just realize you don't need language because you can and are expected to. There's a lot of room inside opera to let the music wash over someone. So you can get to the the epic, the the highs and the lows, and the audience is going to go with you. It's a slower pace. And so you can spend 15 minutes on two sentences. The pace is just different. And so I'm writing right now, and I'll take out huge chunks to just say, "Oh, I can do that." Communicating, in a way, because the music is the is the bicycle, as Adam Gedalow would call it, the bicycle of the event. But every single one is different. Every it's like a, a child that needs something. Sometimes they're they're on you go and, um, and you're off and running but I think for for the libretti it's not as much language as you need for a musical
0: and does that work with Tony Kushner as well who is a genius at language
2: the great thing about Tony like David David's a, um, a violinist Tony is uh, has a beautiful musical ear and he's the son of a clarinetist a bassoonist and his father was a composer and um, Tony has a vast knowledge of classical music. And so the um, musicianship, is, that's really required. You have an understanding of what sets, what language, you know how, how open vowels are and, and how rhyme works and, and teaching all of that. And, and Tony's really, really tuned into the, um, that kind of writing.
0: I also understand that working with Tony can be interesting, let's say, because he's very challenging. Is it a similar relation here? I mean, how does that work? What's the difference between working with a playwright like Tony Kushner and working with a playwright like David Henry Huang?
2: I think when you're working with master storytellers, it, you know, the, the conversation is difficult because it's in a way saying, you know, Serena Williams, the way that she plays her tennis game versus the way that, I forget the Italian woman, I was at the finals, for the U.S. Open, and Serena's rhythm of, of her game was super fast and aggressive and wonderful. And this other woman, this Italian woman, her stroke was long. It was unbelievable. It was like two rhythms, two beats that were matching, and that's what won. It took me a, a little while to understand that Tony had a, a grasp because he's also a great debater, as David is, And Tony's pace is the way his own tempo, his personal tempo. You can just sort of uh, sit and and let it wash over you. And there was that one moment where I said to him, you sound right, but I disagree with you. (laughs) And it was just a watershed moment for us because then we debate and we debate about that that thing. And the debate has to be good-natured in the way that the ferocity comes not from wanting to injure each other, but to get to the best idea for the play. That's what wins. It's not about power. It's about the great idea that wins. And a lot of people don't understand that because they think it's about power. Any theater maker working at this, uh, at this level, you have to be a team player. Otherwise, you sit at home and do work in the corner. But we come together, and I think it's, it also offsets the loneliness that we feel, that I certainly feel, I'm sure you do too, that basically there's we spend a lot of time by ourselves in a room grappling with self-doubt and trying to get something on the page for a deadline. And so when you come together, that's the fun part. You think, oh, you think that? I, I, don't, I don't see that. Can you? And blah, blah, blah. blah and then these, these ideas, and if you have a great director, and we do on Soft Power, they encourage that. They don't stop it. They say, more, more, please. Well,
0: for Soft Power, you've also, uh, I saw that... Oscar Eustace is listed as a dramaturge. Where does he come in and what does he do?
1: I mean, Oscar's somebody who I've had a long relationship with since the early 90s. Uh, Janine and, and certainly Tony, although Tony's not working on this show, have had this long history. So for me, Oscar has always been the best dramaturg in America who understands what it is that, you know, that I, as an author, am trying to do. The public co-commissioned this, and essentially Michael Ritchie and the CTG commissioned me, and then when Janine came on board, the public commissioned Janine. And Oscar's been able to, you know, he's a busy guy these days, but he's able to, like, pop in every few weeks and with some fresh eyes, give us a bunch of notes that are always smart. Many of them we do. Even the ones that we don't do uh, stimulate deeper thought. And so far, that's been his role in the process.
0: Well, last summer, I saw a show on Broadway The Great Comet. The most remarkable thing about it was the choreography. You've got the same choreographer here. Right. So
1: Sam Pinkleton is the person in this collaboration, I guess, that none of us have worked with before. I haven't. You have. Oh, have. oh you have? Yeah. Okay. So he's new to me. I obviously loved his work in Great Comet and in Amelie. So I didn't know what to expect. But... He also is someone who is very much... A team player about collaboration, about engagement and about debate in a, in the most positive sense. And he's not someone who makes up the dance. I mean, I've worked with choreographers and some of them are wonderful who make up the dances and then the teach them to the dancers. He's someone who makes the dances with the, the performers and draws from them in that same kind of debate engagement collaboration style, which then he also brings to the core creative team of, of us.
0: Getting back to the Great Comet, it disappeared for reasons that are very, very odd. I mean, what happened was that there was an African-American in the role of Pierre. Well, he was supposed to go, I think, through September, and they were losing sales, so they brought in Mandy Patinkin, and suddenly it became a race situation, and the result was that the show folded
1: you know i have a long history of engaging with casting debates around race and so i'm i'm interested and sympathetic to this issue however in this particular case i feel like you have to be sensitive to that if you're going to make a decision which is a perfectly legitimate decision to say that an uh, uh, African-American actor is le- leaving and we're going to replace him with a star who happens to be white. You just have to be aware of the buttons that's going to push and therefore roll it out in a way where everybody understands what's going on. And I, and I feel like it didn't have to come to that.
0: Now, Soft Power has um, almost completely Asian cast, is that correct?
1: Yeah, it's um, virtually all Asian and then we have one Caucasian female. Hilary is one of the roles the actress
0: Elise plays. Finally here, for both of you, now this is opening, and it may or may not move to Broadway. You don't know.
1: Look, you create a show, you're always sort of thinking in the back of your mind, where is that going to go? Is it going to go to New York? If it goes to New York, what kind of venue? Well, we've been sort of speculating about those sorts of things, we really haven't had time to think about sort of the producing route of where we, we've we just been trying to make this show work. So in the next month or two, or hopefully we can, you know, spend more time thinking about the, the future path.
0: Uh, Janine Tesori, one more question. You did work on that opera, which before we went on the air, I asked you I'd never heard of this opera with Tony Kushner, A Blizzard on Marblehead Neck, and that's Act One of a two-act opera, and Act Two has not been written. Is that correct? That's correct. Can you talk about any of your other projects that are now back burner while you're doing Soft Power?
2: Uh, I'm writing an opera with Teswell Thompson. That is going to be a glimmer glass. We're workshopping it for a week this summer, and I have a first draft of a new musical with David Lindsay-Abaire, who is also Um, Writing partner of mine that we will work, where we're going to play through for the first time for the producer next week.
0: And David Henry Huang, I assume you have other
1: shows. I actually have a new opera also, which was a one act opera at Washington National Opera, which we're now doing a full length version of at Opera Theater of St. Louis uh, called An American Soldier with the composer Huang Ro.
0: Well, I saw "Flower Drum Song" your version when it came through, and it was wonderful. But it didn't seem to grab hold of people in New York. It didn't last long.
1: Yeah, I that was that was frustrating. It was something that was like hugely successful when it was at the Taper, and you know, ultimately, you just make the show you want to make, and in a way, that's what's good about the theater because you can't game it. I can't game it anyway. So it forces you to fall back on writing what you really believe in. And I think that's also one of the things that makes theater special, that idiosyncratic voice of
0: the authors. And that's very different from film in which the suits send you notes. In this case, you're more on your own. You have more freedom, I would assume.
2: Well, you have copyright. And I think that at the end of the day, the the beautiful thing about what we do is we own our work. And copyright and owning, there is something that, that's what the, the dramatist Guild protects. And we honestly protect each other. It's the beauty of the theater is it belongs to us. And then when we actually lease our work out to producers, but they never own it. We always own it.
0: Are either of you planning to do films at this point?
2: I have worked on films before which I really love because it just makes me think about music in a different way I mean David does a lot of work in all of I don't know if there is a medium that you don't work in
1: I've written several films and I continue to write movies and then I also have like many playwrights uh, worked in television recently as it's become more interesting so I've been a writer producer for a TV show called The Affair on Showtime for the last three years
0: I'm Richard Walensky, and see you next Sunday for another edition of the Bay Area Theater Podcast.